out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, keyboard player and drummer. It is going to be the one and only Mike Gallo, or sometimes Mike S. Gallo, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff, was in a band titled or called 2020, who were based an American power pop band based in Hollywood, California. From the late 70s to the early 80s, Mike has gone on to do lots of other bits and pieces that you're going to find out more about in this fascinating interview. So um, we're going to cut the chat and get right down to it. So um, after several minutes of casual but interesting chat that we edit out, I got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years and that musical moment that could change everything. Mike, it's over to you. I'll tell you. What it was is I heard Love Me Do in 63. I always loved music. I would just hear music, but not, I won't go ahead of myself. But I heard da, 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 She Loves You came on the radio. I fell on the floor, and for the first time, I didn't know what was going on. I got the goosebumps. I never got the goosebumps from music before. <laughs> and I always loved music, but they were speaking to me. And this is before any of the hype or any, this is like November, October of 63. And my major was always art. I was like 10 years old when that happened. But in school, <clears throat> I took various instruments, but I never took it seriously because put it this way, when I would take lessons, I would play what they played. And then what the teacher took, the sheet music way, and I was still playing it. And she goes, I don't know if you're learning, but you sure got a good ear because you play just what I played. And so I go, well, this is, you know, I'm young now. This is like 12 years old. And so I just said, all right. Then and really, I just wanted to, I used to go next door to the neighbors and just bang on their piano. And she was the teacher, the girl. And she goes, you got such a good ear. And I would just make chords. And I didn't know, I thought anybody could do that. You know, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really know. It was just innocent. Like, it just, you, it just came to me. And did your, were you from a, did either of your parents or grandparents, did, were they musical at all? Did they? No. A, well, oddly enough, my father was an amazing harmonicist. And my mom was a great singer. But as far as a piano in the house or any of that, no. I, had a, I bought a set of drums and I snuck them into the third floor attic and I would skip school. They would go to work and I would play the who and play to the radio, the drums, right. shit set of drums. Um, but I went to college for my parents and I knew, I, you know, I, I, I knew, I remember walking across the tender, the frozen mud here in Buffalo knowing I'm just going to finish the school, you know, and go to and go to L.A., start a band. Mm-hmm. Never was in a band in Buffalo. I didn't want to be in a cover band. And so the band I started, I just knew, I, I don't know, I just, I didn't think that, as I can say, I just knew I had something. And I knew, I knew how to do a band. And the first band I started, I started, we got a record deal. So, what a dream. I mean, well, I was like yes. a dream there. I'm like, could this be real? And all my friends here, right, Dave? 
Yeah. They're like, holy shit. <laughs> This guy, this guy, you know, I never was in a band. I didn't want to do covers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you you were there right when it started, you know, you had the Beatles, but did you sort of, when you heard that kind of riff from the, the Kinks, you know? Oh my God, it really got me, really got me. I mean, oh my God. I remember the first time I ever heard that on the radio. I was in my mom's backseat of the car and I went wild on that. Yes. Yeah, that and really, that was, really, and, and that was produced by Shell Tammy, wasn't it? Pardon? That was produced by. And do you know he wanted to produce? I gotta talk to you. You know what? I don't know. He wanted. He was gonna produce. He wanted to produce uh, twenty twenty. He did. Steve Lee White did. Phil Spector. I'll tell you about that story. And the thing with CBS is they didn't want a British producer. They only wanted an American producer. So the only thing I could think of is Pet Sounds and how fantastic it sounded. And I read that Earl Mankey was the engineer on that. Now, so we got him to produce. The truth of the story is he is a good engineer, but what a producer does that I thought, uh, I wanted to be blown away. Yeah. That he wasn't doing. In all honesty, I really literally half produced that record. Like the end of Tell Me Why, all the midsection of yellow pills, all the kind of etherealness I could put in there it was me, it wasn't Earl. I would bring albums in for him to like try to duplicate certain guitar sound or snare sound or whatever on the vocals. That's mm-hmm. how it went. I would bring albums in and say, Earl, this is what I like to get. Uh, Stephen Brown didn't know much about the bigger scope of music. So yes. I, brought, you, I brought that element. So did you, when you were going through that 60s period, did you suddenly have that moment where you said 63, then you had things like the Kings and the Who. Did you, by 67, had you started to embrace that whole, the counterculture world of, you know, psychedelics and psychedelia and, and Jimi Hendrix? And, you know, in January 67, you had the, the gathering well, tribes. And, and I'm going to go fast forward. I ended up in the 80s being friends with Mitch Mitchell. He ended up moving in with my bass player, radio music, and lived there and his house for a year. I was friends with him. He has my cerebrum. He let, I, I don't know where, you know, he died. Um, the thing was, I was always buying, I worked in a record store. There's my, my first child's a paper board. My second was a record store. So I was able to order, import, and whatever. I mean, I was very, I loved the mag, music magazine. So I was like, well, for instance, the move should have been neutral. I hear from word of mouth from what I found out is people were trying to keep the move from breaking in America because they thought it was a threat to the Beatles. And this is a true story. I met a lot of A&R people right away in 75 when I first moved to uh, L.A. Uh, my life is crazy. I mean, like in 77, I saw, I met Kim and Rodney and Greg Shaw, and I actually saw, I was in the studio when the Runaways were trying, recording uh, Cherry Bomb. Right. I don't even know what I've game with my life, but let me let me back up. So I love music, and the Beatles broke up, and I got the first jazz album, and John's vocal melodies were, I'm going, thank God, because he, he gave me the goosebumps again, and I felt like there was hope. John, I ended up meeting him, 
in 70, was it, what, what year was that? 71 June. He, we, I went to see Yes, they opened for Tull, and we had a by coincidence staying where Yes were staying. So I went down for breakfast, and John is in front of me, and we became friends, and he invited me to come see them record at Fragile. I was there when Rick Wakeman first walked in the joy door, and I'm going, you were in the straps. I don't know what you're doing here, but <laughs> I mean, it was, I'm going, he goes, and then he goes, I go, where are you coming from? Because he was in the middle of the night, four in the morning. He goes, oh, I'm doing, I'm working on an album by a guy you never probably heard of. I go, who? He goes, David Bowie. I go, I heard of. I go, I got the first album in Canada on Durham. I fucking love him. <laughs> and, you know, he goes, you heard of him? I'm going, yeah. Because he was doing Hunky Dory. Yes. There you go. Yes, Rick Wakeman was uh, definitely the early, early sort of member of Life on Mars, wasn't he, actually? Right. I mean, God, tell me about a song. I know. Oh, my God. It, it was amazing. On that. But the interesting thing is, Bowie's kind of early career in the 60s, you know, he had all these kind of beat bands and sort of Mark combos. Wallen, yeah, Mark Wallen. Yes, and then he, he had an acoustic kind of band called Feathers. Did he? With Hermione. Like before got, the first album? Yes. So he was ah. in a... So if you if you sort of um yeah if, if you sort of look at his kind of work just before he gets into being David Bowie in the seventies he's he's in something called Feathers, and that's um, after the, yeah. and that's kind of that period where he's gone into folk mode completely folk. So he's got his girlfriend wow. Hermione who he sort of falls in love with and she breaks his heart and then his best friend John Hutchinson as well. But then. Wow. And then he starts to develop Space Oddity and then he sort of meets Angie and then he has uh, Tony DeFreeze and then suddenly, you know, the Ziggy Stardust thing starts to appear. But um, so that's kind of, it's just kind of interesting. You Dave, met... Dave, I remember something that really blew me away. I did an interview in Melody Maker around right after the second one was out yet. And he goes, I'm going to be huge. I'm really going to be huge. And I'm going, and I thought so too, but I'm going, how wild for someone to say that. And but I knew he was too. I got this skipped. That's a whole nother story. Yes. But I just th- thought, oh my God, I can't believe he's saying this in Melody Maker. You know, I'm gonna be huge. He said, you know, it's literally this is an in interview. And I go, you are, I know that. And he did. Yes. Well, <laughs> I think it's like early on. Yes. Well, I think he he had been trying for so long, and then he had you know, Angie, who gave him this kind of push, and then Tony DeFries, right. the main man, you know, music, that also gave him this push, and he was just desperate for it. But he it's also... It's so sad we lost... We're losing, we're losing geniuses, and, you know, it's tough because the way the industry is right now, it's really... I, there's still got to be musical geniuses, but I don't want... This is a whole different story, but I'm not sure if the internet has helped us or not, you know? Mm. It's tricky. It really is confusing. It's a blessing and a curse. There's pro tools, you know, because there's just so much out. Yeah. Everybody's we- trying to raise their hand, look at me, look at me. But before you had to go through uh, a label, AR people, and now you don't. So everybody can make a record. That's a good thing, but also the bad thing. Yeah. So when we got to 1970 and you're still young and you're about to say, this yeah. bit, look at me, then we had the death of Brian Jones and then the following year, Jimmy. Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin. We also had Charles Manson and Altamont. The, the 60s kind of didn't end brilliantly, did it? Did you feel no. like when you woke up and then after after that, did you? how did you sort of feel about 
that kind of oh god it was in a 67 summer of love we had woodstock it was it was horrific dave it was horrific first of all i don't like the stones after brian left i don't like what they it just the magic was gone what i like about them yes they have some great songs but you know this is like the trick and the chemistry of bands when he left to me it was just different rolling stones now, yes, I have a few. Some of those albums are quite good. Exile on I mean, Main Street. Yes, exactly. And so was Sticky Fingers. Let the, it bleed. The Brian, the Brian Jones era of the Stones is a way, that's a way different band. Don't you think? Yeah, it's definitely. But it's just interesting yeah. that the Mick Taylor years had that kind yeah. of four, four years, all those albums. And then when he leaves, Ronnie takes and it's really not good. For me, no, no, same <laughs> to me. Now, weird story. I, I met a float around here because my life is very complicated. But yeah, so when Mitch was living with um, Bill Malay, my bass player of radio music up in the hills, he had a party, and all of a sudden it was who was there? Ronnie Lane, uh, two of the small faces, which I fucking love. I'm like, what the hell, Mitch? But me and Mitch were just like friends, you know. I, I, I I don't idolize anybody. If only Lennon and, Mc, and Gabriel, that's about it. And Patty McLuhan is a songwriter. So mm-hmm. it was just, they were just peers, but it was just a freak. I'm like, I would never expect that I'm going to be in a party with small faces, <laughs> but Mitch knew all these people. So. Yes. But no, I'm, I know. But, so we, you're like saying when Len, Ronnie Lane joined the small faces, it wasn't, you weren't so fond of that. No, when Ronnie Ron Wood, Ron Wood, Wood. Ch- chain, uh, 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 joined the Rolling Stones, it wasn't, right. they never really had that kind right. of magic. And somehow, but, it M- was, Mick, Taylor, Mick Taylor was okay though with them. He was brilliant. Those, that yeah. it, period of exile, Sticky Fingers, yeah. Let It Bleed, were just the best albums ever. I totally but, agree. I totally but, agree. Right. So the Rolling Stones, yes, I, that's about where. Um, I think that's where about I left off them after McTaylor left. Yeah, and there I was the, the the Graham Parsons influence, and there was all that kind of recording of um, Exile in the south of France at Nalcott. It was just a right. kind of great story, you know. It's a good story. But how then? Yeah. Early seventies. When did you decide? Right, you're going to leave home, leave college, and and your next part of your journey. Seventy five. Seventy five. Um, well, here's how it went. So I. Uh, I was I really was close to John Anderson and and I, I didn't play guitar because I broke my elbow playing football. So I can't make a bar chord. I can't play guitar, but I can play keyboards and I hear the melodies. And John would come in with the microtape. And that's how he wrote. He wrote parts and he sang them on microtape. And I go, I could do that. And from that, it was that was like Dave, what, August? Yeah, August when they were recording Fragile. I came home, I started using two cassette decks and microtapes. I would come up with melodies in the car, just sing them, come home, didn't have four track or anything, just use two cassette decks, mounted them back and forth. The first song I wrote was Incubator Baby. Right. Because I was an incubator for two months and I had just found out. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, yeah, it, it is. I still have it, but. Amazing, amazing. So that, I'm just saying, so I, I just got encouraged by John and go, this is what I could do. I mean, I hear the music. I hear all these parts. John 
doesn't play guitar like that and uh et cetera, et cetera. And he really he really was the touchstone for me given the getting the confidence to be able to continue and actually go, I could do this. I could do it the way he's doing it. I can't play the guitar, but he sang the parts. The yes. the, the the lead the lot of the lead guitar on 2020, I'm actually singing the notes to see. And that's how I did it. Right. So you embraced that kind of world that we became known as prog rock, really, didn't you? That that kind of world of because you mentioned Peter Great Gabriel. So you went through a Genesis phase oh, as well. So the Gabriel thing is I got trespassed and Elton John on import at the record. I ordered them at the store I worked at. And I now we didn't get empty skies, so it was your song, Elton John album, and Trespass. I went back to Dave, you were with me. I went back to my girlfriend's house and I played them going, holy shit. These, these these guys are gonna be huge. This I just blew my mind, trespass in the first, well, our first Elton John album. So uh in college, I was on the music committee and I brought Genesis because I wanted to see him. The first time I played America, I paid $750 for Genesis to play my college, and I picked them up at the airport. We played pool, me and Gabriel became friends. I mean him went out for pizza a lot. And that was, what was that album? Something England by the Pound album, mm-hmm. right? right. The, another, another part of that was the, they did Leon Weiss down here. I'm with, you know, I called Peter up, I'm out with them. I'm in the elevator and he's telling me they had done, after the show in Buffalo, I went back to the hotel. I'm in the elevator with them and he's telling me that he's leaving Genesis. I'm going, I don't, I look at, I go, no, you can't leave Genesis. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, he goes, you're the first person I told. I go, are you serious? Because I haven't told the band yet. I'm telling them tomorrow. Now, he said, and I knew it, uh, too many people were screaming Gabriel, Gabriel at these shows here. Yeah. And he goes, and we're arguing because the band does write 90 or 80 percent of the music i don't know exactly myself you know i wasn't there for the writing and it goes and we're arguing a lot because they're jealous or whatever was going on that he's getting all the attention so he decided to leave if i mean what a weird position to be in yeah i don't know and i wasn't happy about it but land lies down on broadway what blew my mind you know and and then i found out he's leaving so yes that was disappointing so look yeah. so, prog, so prog rock was, because because right. to be honest my i got an older brother who was seven years older he was really into prog so i got into yes and genesis and wishbone Ash, barton james harvest and the solo work of rick wakeman as well so i know all yeah. the albums really well but you yeah, also I, you, I'm, men- I'm, I'm, I'm you also mentioned either. Just, you also mentioned Elton John because there was the album he got, which which was Yellow Brick Road, which was absolutely oh, stunning piece of oh, work. Oh my God, yes, that that changed a lot. Uh, I mean, at first he was a great singer songwriter, but Yellow Brick Road was a masterpiece, absolutely yes. a masterpiece from beginning to the end. I know the last track is one of my favorites, Harmony. Me, which... Mine too. <laughs> totally. You get the goosebumps, I do. I, totally. Oh, absolutely. The, the the melancholic vibe of that song is just incredible. Yeah. 
it's just so beautiful yeah. so um yeah that's the one you know i always play that and yeah, I love, yeah really you know. i just bought a remaster of it you know i wish they really did a good job with the remaster but yeah that you, blew my mind so yes. did you get to see elton when he played the whiskey a go-go in la i didn't know because i was thumb up for when he played the whiskey right yeah. Right, I've got but you. I saw him here though with a uh, two and a half thousand people. Small, yes, small. Um, so he was wearing right red hot pants, corduroy with uh, what, what was is it the suspenders that that era? Right, I do love Roy Rogers as well, which is a great song. Yeah, um, yeah. but then um, and as the seventies was progressing, you know, we had the kind of the prog rock, which is serious musicians. How did you feel about that glam world? You know, you had David Bowie, but you had Alice Cooper, and then the New York Dolls, but, and and those kind of sort of punky glam bands. Well, the thing was, I was into Tyrannosaurus Rex when they had Tyrannosaurus Rex albums, the first two. So I already loved Mark Bowie. I couldn't understand. I thought I was singing in a different language, but I already was interested into Tyrannosaurus Rex. The glam thing, I mean, the 70s had so many elements. We had Prague, we had glam. It was even, you know, really, punk was starting with the Ramones, New York Dolls. Um, I mean, some people say the 70s was horrible music, but there was so much variety of what transitioned from the 60s to the 70s, like all these different veins, all these different tentacles. Yes. There's something for everybody. And, and I, you... I like Alice Cooper and uh, Sweet. And, you know, I did. As well as the Raspberries and, of course, Big Star. All this was going on at the same time. Yes, absolutely. So then when, when did you transition from Buffalo to L.A. and sort of you know, start to, re, you know, set set yourself in a different city? October 15th, 1975, I left Buffalo. Um, I somehow, a friend of mine from college here also moved to LA and you end up working for Bomp Magazine. So I met Greg Shaw. Through Greg Shaw, I put an ad in for Guitar Player Wanted. I already had started writing songs with a guitar player. One of them was I Need Somebody, which I'll get to, which we recorded, which was going to be the first single off the first 2020 album. Yeah. But I already had met somebody. Uh, he kind of flipped out and went back to his from Muscatine, Iowa. So anyways... Steve answered an ad I had in the back of Bot magazine, Steve Allen, and we clicked. So it was just me and Steve, and we were writing songs for about eight months. Uh, I'm just going to be honest. He said he had a friend that played bass, but they would butt heads a lot. So he, anyways, Ron came out, and I go, we need a bass player. It's just me and you, Steve. I played drums, played guitar. We were in my bedroom. I was putting all, I was putting all the sofas against the windows so we wouldn't get evicted. <laughs> Ron came out. I heard them two sing together. I'm going, no. And I told put Steve aside. I said, no. I said, He's, we got to do it. Uh, we're, we're, he'll mellow out. I mean, it's a band. It's not just you and him. Because mm. I said, I was finding a combination of two vocals that works like this, because we've already done this together in cover bands. I said, this is a, no, this, we have, we have to do it. So Ron was in the band. So it was like me, Steve, then Ron. 
So what happened after that, I got drums and wires and Gary Newman replicas and blah, blah, blah. I go, I want a bigger sound. We were almost going to get signed as a three-piece. We would have, I think. But I wanted, I just wanted to add keyboards and a three-part harmony and another guitar because I was so into drums and wires. And I wanted to get that two guitar thing going on as well as some a bit of birds. Mm. So uh, I had at least 40 auditions after it was me, Steve and Ron, and probably 40-something auditions. And Chris was just the right temperament and just fit in like a glove. So that was that. So we had, that was the beginning. Sure, we got a record deal within a year and a half or less, the four of us. Yes. Quite fast, actually. I remember saying to Ron, you know, we're going to get a record deal. He goes, oh, we're not. No, no, I'm going, wait, Ron, I wouldn't be in this if we weren't. I'm going to waste my time. <laughs> so I'm, just, I'm just telling you the truth. This is the truth. Yes. I don't Did know. you? I mean, because because the band, this was like 76, 77. Did, was there a little bit of a, actually, the musical landscape is slightly changing. People are getting more into punk at this stage than wanting, you know, a kind of a clean cut like band like the Eagles or, you know, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, they were all right, but there was another band. I remember there was Clover. There was a band called Clover that had Huey Lewis in. Oh, yeah, and they, yeah. And they were about to make it, and it was like punk appeared, and it was like, and people like Niels Lofgren, you know, it was like, oh, they're good, but it's not really what the kids are wanting to right. listen to. And actually, the first Elvis Costello album featured the back. Oh, that blew my mind, yes. But that had, I... the, the members of Clover were his backing band on that album, and then he got the attraction. Oh, I didn't know that. So I just wonder how you were thinking, God, this is great. And then you went, oh, my God, here's, here's the Ramones, here's the Sex Pistols, now we've got the Clash, and actually all the record, you know, record yeah. guys oh, are all you... wanting to go. Now, Right. Now, the thing, here's a quick story. I, I, when I, I worked for CBS a bit, in 1977, we had a convention. Uh, what's it? I forget her name. Oh, something Penny's. Uh, Penny Smith? Patty she, Smith? Not the, no, not the artist. She was a writer, and she brought me to see the Clash rehearse. Right. And me, me and Mick and Joe went for Chinese food. And I, they weren't on Columbia yet. And I brought them <laughs> to the convention, all the round tables, uh, Teddy Pettigrass was playing. Of course, they stood on the tables, were acting like punks. Long story short, that was in July. And in December, my boss said, do you want to do music or do you want to work for us? Because you got a choice. I go, I want to do music. What ironic thing is, it's because sign. Five labels start bidding on us, and Lenny Pizzi was the president. We get signed to the same label that I got fired from, <laughs> and right then, and we play the whiskey, and then you pet, uh, pet, Petsy, Petsy was it? I'm trying to think of his name. Weber was the president, then comes on stage at the whiskey and says, "This is the first time someone that worked for the label got signed," and it was funny. I mean. <laughs> Because yes. I got fired and nothing signed me, but differently, different way. I'm working for them. Yes. What are the odds of that? But they gave us the best offer. They gave us a really, really good deal. Right. I, so I screwed the... up, though, Dave. Because Did you? 
why I did. Because the last thing on my mind, I got a, is it was like any two members of the band could be 2020. Now, I trust them. I'm going to cut to the chase. So I was dealing with my sexuality and I came out during the recording of the album. So I, I'm going to let you talk. <laughs> but that became a problem. Right. Because I was getting <clears throat> hassled by one of the members called homophobic names. Uh, it wasn't fun. I was, I was very high. I was humiliated and embarrassed. And yes. I'm supposed to be playing drums with this person. And the people behind the glass couldn't hear what was being said to me. Only I. Very difficult. Yes. Because it was difficult enough to be, this is 1979, not 2022. And my manager, our manager, had a meeting with me, Steve, and Ron and Chris and told me I cannot be openly heterosexual, I mean, openly bisexual or gay. That's what they told me. So. So when David, just a few years before that, when David Bowie said, you know, I'm bisexual and everyone was like, right. oh, but brilliant at the same time, but quite a big yeah. moment. I mean, did that not filter through the, the kind of vague rock world? He's the one, he's the one that gave me the confidence and courage to do that. But my manager said, but that's England. We're in America. And they were trying to push us because I guess they thought we were cute. They go, this isn't going to be good for the girls. I mean, so it was painful. I mean, I had to pretend. I'm not good at pretending. No, you know? no, absolutely. And I mean, I suppose there's all the actors in Hollywood who were also having to pretend as well. So there was a lot of pretense at that time. I know. And this is 1979. Yeah. But, one, but particularly, I mean, Stephen Ryan, I better shut up. I'm not having a problem, but the other guys were fine. Yes. I'm not gonna, I don't mention names. I don't need any problems. But. No, no, absolutely. But it, it obviously didn't. Um, yes, because people right. forget at that time if a, no sports people, men basically, could come out as gay. Because right. there, there was one in England, I think it was, well, there was probably more than one, but Justin Fashion, who was this player, and he said, I'm gay. And basically, is, is that, was this? Was this early on? Well, no, this was in the 80s, but he unfortunately, yeah. you know, yes. kills himself in the end because um, right. it never goes well, does it? And people well, forget that, that the abuse that people got and, you know, mm -hmm. like and the, the, the papers in this country would almost like if they knew somebody was gay, they would really blackmail them and say, we're going to we're going to sort of out them we can out them and then they'd out them and destroy their life so people forget how horrendous that period was okay i'm gonna cut to something that is very difficult dave was there so after this problem with we recorded the album steve and ron come over i'm trying to deal with my sexuality i was drinking they brought a piece of paper I, and they gave me $1,200. And I thought that I was signing uh, like a receipt for a royalty check. It ended up being 
that I signed my publishing to them. We had, I'm going to say this, and everybody knows most, not everybody, but me, Steve, and Ron had a three-way publishing deal between us, just us three. Every, they can, Shelly, our manager, they convinced me to just have us. Alan Flint, like Glennon McCartney, I'm, my name is like wherever. I'm married to George Harrison. And I'm going, oh, that's okay. Because the money's divided three ways, and I don't care. I just want to make music. Yeah. Right? Um, I don't know. So I didn't care about that. But later, after we recorded the album, what was going on is they were getting some offer from BMG, I guess. And to get me whatever I signed made it so I wasn't going to get a third of whatever they got, which I think was 30000 I don't want to say too much. I don't know. But I got mm. 1200 I don't know. I thought I was just signing... I was living on cheese and crackers at this moment. And I thought I was just signing a receipt for the $1,200. I only recently, to be honest, realized what's going on because I haven't received a penny for anything. Not that I care that much about, it's not that much money, but it's the integrity. And mm. how could you do that to me? I would never do that to somebody. Take advantage of them, have them sign. I'm like, Who the hell would sign their publishing away for $1,200. I would be in the music business long enough to know that, you know? Long story short, so I don't know what they did, but 10 years, 1990, I got a publishing deal of my own with Warner Chapel. Right. And then that person died, passed away. But very intricate, you know, I just read a book, people say, but uh, yeah, so I got a publishing deal of my own, but I didn't realize till only about what is the day? Because Dave was there when they did this. My best friend. He lived right. with me. Now he bought a house eight blocks away from my house. Yeah. But he was there. And I didn't know what I was signing. I was drunk. And I would never think they would, these people that it was really one in particular, but it was there was two people there. Yes. You know? Absolutely. And I would never think they would do something like this to me. Down on a long story short. No. integrity you know they can fix it in a day i mean but yes it's to, it, it was it, painful it, it, to find out realize what they did yes. they remember that's not a good one you got did a you, scoop there i got it i know well it does i mean unfortunately it does happen but i mean skullduggery yeah. the the i know it huntress is. thompson had a great line about the music industry and various things and um it's kind of it's not a pleasant business. So when when you had that, but you didn't realize what you'd done, then when you started to make the second album, this is because 2020 is your first album. The second one is looking right. Well, when, here was here's what happened. They started doing the second album, and Steve wanted me to come down to the studio because he said the magic was gone. I said, I'm not coming down to the studio, I'm not in the band anymore. So uh a week later, he asked me. If they could, if he could use part of the song me and him wrote together, called "I Fall Out," which became "Night I Heard a Scream," which I think is the best song on the album, I go sure as long as you give me credit. Well, it came out, and I didn't. My name's not on that. So, once again, but what I did is just hibernated, became recluse, to be honest, and just. Bought some, you know, tape decks and started and equipment and started writing and recording, and started radio music. The second band, and we opened for, we opened for you too. 
Yes. They they asked the um McGinnis, Paul McGinnis, heard my tape. Oh, and yes. it was the first time they played LA and they asked if we would open. And I said, You damn right I will. You're gonna be huge. And what I hung was out with them for I hung out with them for the whole day. So what was the name of your second album? Uh, second a uh, second band that you started? That, I never released anything yet, but I'm going to. It was radio music. Right. One word, radio music. Radio music, my God. So when the 80s appeared, because this is the, you know, this is a fascinating decade. You know, we had we, yeah, had, we, right? we had Thatcher, you had Reagan, we had, you know, we had the Falkland crisis, we had the Green and Common nuclear bomb thing. We also had the miners' strike. We had huge amount of unemployment. You know, it was kind of a quite a grim period. So what was it? How did you navigate the 80s? Because obviously, you know, you, you'd been in this band nearly five years. Um, things have right. been sort of, you know, you have that optimism. Mostly bands fall out during some period, but not kind of during the first album too much, and especially getting kicked out of a band, which is well, horrible. Because you started the band, so to be kind of knocked out, outmaneuvered is kind of skullduggery, really, isn't it? Well, I think I've left something out. So I left 2020 and... I knew Barry left XCC, so I called Andy up, and Andy gave me Barry's number, and we sent tapes back to each other, and then Barry said, I'm, I'm interested in starting a band with you. So I left 2020, and like August, September of 79, December 3rd, no, November 3rd, 1979, I go to England, I already had been there in 71 and 77. I go to England to meet with Barry. I, I get out of the get out of the plane, get in my friend's car. I get out to get a Melody Maker magazine. I looked the wrong way, got hit by a car, broke my leg and ankle, and was in Charing Cross Hospital for a month. Ooh. And Clive Langer was interested in producing us. Barry came to see me there. Rob Dickens, who was the president of Warner Brothers, came to visit me. But I was in my had a cast up above my knee because I had three pins put in my ankle. What a bummer! Yes, but a... that made that made Melody Maker said accidents will happen. <laughs> and then I said, Mike Galvin, twenty twenty comes to work with Barry Andrews and gets hit by a car in thirty minutes. Too much. It was too much. So then, once you once so. As the eighties progresses, how do you then maneuver? You've you've kind of had a band with supporting you too. What what's your next kind of musical part of this journey? Well, here's the thing: I was gonna there was so much great music coming out, you know, between Prefab Sprout, Wire. I mean, it was unbelievable, right? To me, I was soaking it all up, and it's an, I've recorded sixty. I have sixty eight to seventy two songs recorded. They just, I want to master them. I don't know. I mean, I have my own, you know, my melodies in my head are my own, but I was just so invigorated and inspired with, with the music was Cowboys International, all this stuff was just so amazingly inspired. And Prefab Sprout's first album and Steve McQueen, I, I just blew me away. Yes. It's brilliant. I saw, so I, I, saw, got, I saw, I saw, I got I saw, excited again. Yes. <laughs> well, the Steve McQueen album by Prefab Sprite was just a classic because there's a class, you know, when love breaks down and Bonnie, 
Oh, and uh, uh, sort of Farron Young is just stunning. But, yeah. but When Love Breaks Down is, I think, their best song. But on the romantic, yeah, really. So, so the 80s indie scene, which I love so much, yeah. did, that, did you start sort of enjoying bands like the Smiths? Did they come into Oh, my God, yes. And be honest, the first time I played the first album, I go, oh, I'm not sure about the boys. But like about the third time, I'm like, yeah, I was in love with the voice because the voice matched the lyrics, it matched Johnny Marg's guitar. I, mean, I just like, oh, yeah, yeah. This, and it was so different from uh, the other bands. The Smiths just had a different thing. Yes, they did have a different yeah. sensibility. Dear old Morris, yeah. we loved him, didn't we? So right. then, so then, as the eighties, so you mentioned Phil Spector at one stage. Where does he fit into the narrative? Okay, so um, I was was asked to book Madame Wong's, which was the indie club for indie bands, and Rodney Bingheimer brought Brian Wilson and Phil Spector to see us. Um. Brian was messed up, felt his, just, his head ended up in his soup. I met Phil. Phil invited us, 2020, to dinner three times at the Hamburger Hamlet. He seemed like, well, of course, I thought he was a genius. I already knew that. And I'm like, we got we to gotta take this serious. So he invited us to his house, me, Steve, Ron, and Chris. Uh, a limousine picked us up and brought us there, and we were kept there. We couldn't leave for 17 hours. Uh, but the guy that was playing our songs, five of them we played. Four of them were mine that started some of the problem. And he played with two hands, five-finger chords. I was like, this guy is insane. It was just like an orchestra, and he's just on this grand piano. He wanted to produce us. I think we're all hesitant because we thought we were excited about having a record deal and he wanted he wanted to do it. We got afraid that we'd never get out of the studio. Right. Other, I regret that we didn't have him do it because for me, it'd be an artifact. I mean, I, I don't care what it's on. But <laughs> he was, he would go up and down the stairs and he was peeing his pants and yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a girl there that had sent her out to get a pizza. She comes back. He locks her in the closet with these bars, but it's right against the living room. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Ronnie called up, and he puts her on these corner speakers, these metal speakers, you know, from the 50s or whatever, and he, I'm hearing them argue. Right. And he, and she, and he goes, Ronnie. He goes, Ronnie, you made yourself. I didn't make you, remember? I guess she was asking for money. But I'm like, I don't want to hear this. It's yes. like, I can see that this is going to be, this working with him would be a problem. So mm -hmm. I um, knew Johnny and Joey from the Ramones, and they knew about this. And I said, I don't know, guys. You know, he's a genius. But I, I shared briefly my experience with him. Long story short, after they recorded with them, they told me that, yeah, he went in the park a lot of a shoot off the gun and da 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 da. And I, yes. I, I, don't, I hate violence. I, I don't know. You know? No. And uh, during the 80s. I really regret not doing that, though, Dave. Yes. I mean, it, would have, it would have been interesting, but um, yeah. you might be. You might, I don't know. Don't know. He could have gone either way. I know he did a good album with. Uh, 
well, interest in album with John Lennon. So that was quite well, yeah, right. I mean, you know, I'm like, you know, I told you about the Beatles. So the weirdest thing is my mind wasn't thinking that he produced Let It Be and did John Lennon. I, I just felt I was my appear, you know, I really wasn't, I'm not taken up by that. I just so much wanted to be blown away by somebody who would be working with me because that's what I want. I'm a producer that blows me away. Mm. I want to blow away people. I want someone who blow away me. Uh, other people, which I won't name, that's a threat to them. That's not a threat to me. Blow me away. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, so then, as the 80s, you know, we've sort of got Prefab, Sprite, The Smith, The Cure, people, all those groovy bands. There's a fears I, I met. I hung out with them. Uh, I had an interview with them for LA Weekly, actually. Excellent. We love I them. remember telling Roland, I go, you know what? You guys, everybody wants to rule the world to so be number one. And Roland goes, no, no, shout. I go, no, because I had the importers <laughs> and out. I was right. Yeah. I like I love them guys. I like so how did story. you how did you manage to keep some sort of hustle going? <laughs> Say it again, Dave. I said, I said, how did you keep it sort of the hustle or making ends meet at this stage? Because obviously you've been in a band, you're no longer in a band, you're probably not at the you know, rocking working in a regular job. So how did yeah. how were you navigating this kind of period in the 80s? Well, um I was asked a lot to do special DJs. Uh, I would DJ weddings and special parties and events, which would pay 500 bucks. And I was getting some royalties still from the album, I believe. And then I got uh, some some money from signing my publishing to Warner Brothers. Right. So I, yeah, so I survived like that. Now, I went to England. I started sending my music to England. And I went back to England in 70, but ran out of money. And um, to the so before I could get a record deal, but I had letters from many, many producers that were interested in producing us, like David Baskin, Mike Howlett, Martin Russian. And oh, I forgot to mention. So when I got signed, publishing of Warner Chapel, uh, John Anderson was living in LA. He found out, he heard it. I went to his house three times. I got a letter from him saying he wanted to produce my first album. The mm-hmm. guy that signed me, the guy that signed me died. So there, I yes. know, it's like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. But, <laughs> it's so, always- but I went to John's house a few, t- about four times. Um, and that, it was ironic because I had met him in some quite fragile, and here we are. That's seventy-one. Now we're talking, like right you know, ninety, ninety-one. Yeah, right. Yes. The guy that signed me was supposed to do the dealing with the labels, and I had no one to take his place, and he passed away from AIDS. Blimey! It was horrible timing. Yeah, horrendous timing. So then. Do you start a record label a little bit later, or have you got other musical adventures before the? Because is it uh, Two Moons Records that you set up? Right. So I had twenty twenty. Then I did radio music, and then we played out live for about three months. That was with Steve Schiff was in the band, who later worked with Nina Hagen, and then co-wrote with Keith Forsey. Don't you forget about me. 
he gave me, he bought, he built the studio, gave me free studio time for a month and a half, recorded a bunch of songs then. So that's like 83 or four. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> trying to remember, remember this. And then I started Two Moons and we played out, we headlined the Whiskey and we headlined the Roxy. But I pulled the plug because the five members weren't creating what I was creating on four track. You know, it just wasn't right. Mm-hmm. So as far as playing live, I pulled that plug. But a friend I met at the publishing company ended up work, um, taking care of Ron Wood's um, recording studio on a bus. Okay. So he gave me free studio time. I recorded about 28 songs there and 95 to 96. So he, some people do pay it, pay it forward. Now, that was Paul Dell, who Ooh. also died of AIDS later. Christ unfortunately. Yeah. Horrible. It's not good. But it what really? a great, great guy. I met him. He was signed to Screen Gems, I believe. And um, we just clicked. He just offered. He just was such an amazing friend. I mean, he just, so I got control. Um, my job is to take care of Ron Wood's bus studio. And I, I love what you're doing. It's a shame, you know, I hear, I'm going to give you, you know, he didn't even say, he goes, however long it takes. So right. about six months, he gave me of, of studio time. That's amazing. Unbelievable. And he actually was on John Lennon, I mean, John Anderson's albums too, which I don't know. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention that was, um, Greg Penny first took us in the studio, one of brothers who ended up producing uh, Katie Lang's album that won the awards. This is the 79, though. Yeah, yeah, sure. So and you know who's on those tapes sitting right next to me? Tom Petty. Oh my God, Tom Petty. Don't, I shouldn't have said this shit. I'm going to get so many fucking phone calls. I own all this stuff. I just don't. I need to trust somebody. I have all these tapes. I have everything right here. Do you? Yeah. Randy's Rickenbacker. He's on five songs. He's sitting right next to me. We click. Stan Lynch was a big fan of 2020. We'll come on stage, right, Dave? At the whiskey and play tambourine behind me. (laughs) And I would have these crazy parties. He was always coming to the party. Amazing. Oh, so this is really cathartic for me, Dave. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So you've got an amazing archive of recordings just there. Yeah. My God, what yeah. are you going to do with them all? What do you think I should do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been, two weeks ago, David Bash said, you know what, I know, I don't want to get too detailed, but people that be interested in releasing their stuff. Now, I did not want to release anything. I kind of had it with the music industry and I had a home invasion and I just didn't want to deal with the stress. I just want to rent music. I don't know, but something changed and now I want to release this stuff because yes. if I don't, if I don't, when I die, then it doesn't get out. That's, that's not right. That's not good. We I need so you- much work and yeah, there's so much work into what I did do, Dave. This is your life. This is this yeah. is your this oh is your legacy. It, this it, is it your totally archive. Is. If you only knew how much of my life it is, my life. It's the only thing I love is animals and music. That's it. Yeah. That's a good combination. We love we love animals as well. So um, I mean, yeah. what what would you say? What would your input be about the way to go about releasing my stuff 
I'm not sure if I should use the band name, my name, or I'm not sure. I've, I think you I've should. I think you should take ownership and have it as your name, but also mention yes, 2020. Because yeah. yeah. in a way, I guess you've never had any more relationships with any of the members of the band, have you? Right. No. And they. Steve, Steve. Steve Allen called me and apologized for what they did for an hour and a half. In the last 15 minutes, he was. I believe he was crying out loud, and he said, "Kamra has been a bitch to him." That's what he said. I like Steve, right. but no, I haven't. We haven't worked together. Um, we're friends, and Chris definitely friends with. But I, I have no. We haven't worked together. So you've I kind think, of done. You've done some healing, or sort of healing. Yeah, yeah. but we, you've done something with Steve. You know, yeah. you've had that conversation. Yes, so that could, up, yeah, right. Because that meant a lot to me from your calling me out of the blue. I didn't expect that. Now, I have to say, Ron called me up in 97 to play with them at South by Southwest. Yes. But I hung the phone up. And he's tried to friend me on Facebook. I just haven't accepted it yet. They say he's changed. But you know what? For me, the change would be, I mean, I don't know if they're talking about his his changed about sexuality but the change for me would be to fix that publishing deal the way it was that would that would that would be what i want it's not about the money it's about that's not the integrity and it's like how dare you do that no no no. it's just like i but you know dwight dwight said give him a chance and i haven't this is recently, and you know, people said he's changed. And I wish if he's changed, the proof would be to to put that publishing deal the way it was, which is three way. I don't know what the hell I signed, what the hell they maybe not made me do, but I don't know what I signed. I would never think they would do. They I think it was whatever one person, but I Stephen Ryan went to my house. I would never think they would do that. Yeah. So it's a hard but, one. To- Yes, I think I think people are telling me when I release whatever I release, I should use it my name. Definitely, Not, yes. Yeah, yeah, and just they're all my they're all songs I've written, and and three quarters of them or more I'm singing. So absolutely, that's what I think. With yeah. um, just with you know Chris from the band, he he does he becomes a record producer, doesn't he as well in yeah. later life? Mm-hmm. So he yeah. he works with one of my favorite band. Where he's he's got the Redskins. Did he? Did you ever? Did you sort of keep a a kind of I don't know a friendship? With you? Oh, was a, absolutely, yes, yeah. So, so Chris he's is very, he was the balance of the band, you know because. We got big so fast. I mean, we were—it's cool. I mean, we were playing at this like little restaurant on Fairfax Avenue, and like about what was it? Six months later, we're headlining the whiskey, selling out two shows Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I remember that. And so the thing was, I think you know, you never know what how that kind of success or whatever. You don't know how pe- different people react and change differently. Some people, Peter Gabriel told me this in a hotel room once. He goes, he goes, Mike, because they were starting to get big. This is when they're just selling him by the pound. He goes, this is how it is. 
there's a who. And you are this person before you go through this who. Mm-hmm. And so you have start having success. You either don't go through the hoop and you become the success and what you read, or you go through the hoop and you are the same person you were. I'll never forget that. This is like during something by the pound. And he was so true to his words because um, when the song came out, I bought chickens on the line at the Roxy. He comes out of a limo and he sees me and pulls my hand and, and one of my band members, some, uh, yeah, two, I think Brian was on me, babe, pulls me and, dra- and he says, Mark, come with me. And we go up into, you know, his dressing room and stuff. I love the guy. Yes, that's, absolutely. That is, you know, I, that's, he went through the hoop and he stole Peter. Well, absolutely. And, you know, and it meant so much when he said it. Business is like 74. I mean, it's before I left for, LA or anything. I mean, it's really John and Peter were mentors to me. And I, I'm not a proud person. I love music. And it's just how it happened. It's just whatever. But they were very, very supportive and made such an impression on me. Because I really yeah. I was blown away by them both. As but artists. also, I mean, with, with yes. I respected and... them, you know. So I Which heard is what good. they said. But yeah. I, I know with the yes story, they they've even got more of a a messy relationship than oh, any yeah, band. Yeah. I mean, there's like well, two mem, there's two groups, there's two yes bands. Now. Yeah, I remember being at John's house. I go, "Where's Chris?" He goes, "Oh, he's gone there, fucked up, pointing down to the valley." And like, I mean, you know, I don't know really if it was John and Steve who were having an issue. It, I think Steve and uh, John own the name. And kind of like Brian lets the Beach Boys go with the Beach Boys. I think John let Steve go with Yes, and John did his whole thing. I think yes. it was just that head, they had that camaraderie. So I think John and Rick Wakeman are in one band, and then Steve and the oh, other yeah. guys are in the other That's band. That's kind of it. And yeah. they've, they've got these two bands called Yes, and it's almost yeah, like... Yeah, that's right. It's a bit tricky. But then someone told me there's... um. I did an interview with a 70s band called the Rubettes, and I think there's four versions of this band. Each member of that band have got their kind of, you know, my my Rubettes, my Rubettes, my Rubettes. You know, it's all that kind of their name and then the Rubettes. So, and also I did an interview with a guy from Barclay, James Harvest, and he, there's two, you know, there's like the two singer-songwriters have oh, gone, gone their right. separate way. So there's two versions of that band. So it is terrible. But you're... But what you're saying then is really yeah, the yeah, problem with with with, 20, yeah. with with 2020. Really, it was the fact that they were so unpleasant about your sexuality, and that publishing that absolutely broke your heart. Well, there's another part to this. So we record. I need somebody, which I wrote before I met them, and then in the afternoon of one of the days, someone from CBS comes in and says that's going to be the first single. So between that freaked, Ron changed after that, because I wrote that alone before I met them. And between that, it seems like, and then my sexuality, that's when the shit hit the fan, so to speak. Because, and I didn't care because like I said, the publishing was three ways anyway. So that was his ego, I guess. I don't I don't really know. All I know is someone came in and said, I need somebody to give me the first single, which was the first song we would play in our set. 
And it's, I don't know. I, I just remember that and we recorded it. We didn't finish it. Why? Obviously, probably why? Because it was a committed single. I don't, you know, I was, that was separate. I was just, I was trying to just navigate this relationship with a member about my sexuality and trying to stay. I was, I was crying when I would go home. It was humiliating, embarrassing. And what I thought they did is I had that the holy, or I don't want to say that, but have that to hold against me. And that with the drinking, because I was drinking because of that recording, uh, I felt trapped. Like, I don't know, like something, my self-confidence was whatever. And that's when I made that stupid move of signing whatever piece of paper I signed with this publishing thing, thinking no one and that our band would ever do such a thing as that. Yes. That is, you know? that is crazy. crazy. So when did you start to feel quite different about, I mean, the, the obviously the, there's kind of a lot of pain about the, the band still, but did you start to feel different about your sexuality after the 90s? Did did things start to feel a little bit more like it was yeah, not, not yeah. a thing? Yeah, especially after bands I loved, like Neil, like Pet Shop Boys and various bands were coming out in England. Yeah, yes. I felt like I'm not, I'm normal. I'm just, is. I mean, you, you can't force yourself to be attracted to somebody. You are attracted to who, to who you're attracted to. And then England, really, like, I, I was hanging out with Mark Boland in 1977 at Heaven. I went there and they were all just free being what they were, you know. That really, really, Dave, that really helped me a lot. Yeah, because, and then in the 80s, we had Tom Robinson, then we had the Conrad, right. well, then, we, then we had Bronsky Beat, the, the Bronsky Beat, and then we had the Pet Shop Boys, and then, I don't know. Erasure. Erasure, yes, and um, Vince Clark as well. So I guess, right. I guess the, the yeah, the, yeah, the UK sort of like, I don't know, but it was interesting because a few years ago I did an interview with a, a kind of a, a person who did a book about, I don't know, about 60s. It was called The Velvet Muff Mafia, and it was about sort of the six, 50s and 60s, all these music managers who were all gay, but they all had to be repressed. What's the name of the book, Dave? We write that down. Oh, write I'll send it to you. It was the, called The Velvet okay, yeah. The Velvet Mafia, and um, it's okay. all about the kind of, I suppose... Underground gay men. No, not underground. They were all the, the people who ran the music industry, like, you know, the, the manager Epstein and all the people who were, um, <clears throat> yeah, who were, who were sort of having to be repressed, but then everyone knew that they were sort of, uh, I'll, I'll find the title of the book for you, but it's it, it got a lot of good press, actually. Yeah, I, want to, I would like to read that. Yeah. I'm, um, I, I, I'm at peace with my sexuality. Um, it was a crazy, you know, I don't, I want to throw things out there that just blew my mind. I, I got like a bubble and it said, Henry Epstein wants to friend you. I'm like, huh? For real? Is this for real? And it was him. I'm going, oh. and he called, I've talked 15 times on the phone now because we're friends, but I'm like, why? I don't, I still don't even know why. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but then it's just like, because I wasn't online until two years ago. You know, amazing. I mean, oh, did you? I, I mean, did you? Uh, do you sort of feel 
like now there's a more of an urgency for you to sort of look at those archives, look at what you've done and try and sort of put your focus into putting out all the stuff that you've, you know, that is your life. Yeah, I actually do that. I do. And um, God bless my friends that that I don't really know physically, but the letters and messages I've gotten, they saved my life. They really, them and Dwight, there was a bad, the worst period I ever, I was so close to something bad about, I guess, three weeks ago was that day? Three weeks ago. Oh my God. And um, Dwight and people like Jordan Oaks and Paul Collins and a few other people, Debbie Scow, they literally saved my life. I mean, I just, between. What they called Chrysologi called me just the pain of not having recognition that other people are stealing from me and I didn't know that. And I just, how could you? The integrity I thought that people, it, it was just a, a, just a cathartic. I was just like I wrote, I said I had an epiphany and I really did from my, from these people. It just changed. I went, I'll never be the same like that and again. It changed me. So I'm so I felt so safe to change my heart and my soul. These yes. people. And that was only three yeah. weeks ago. My God, that was yeah. uh, it was bad. You I were said, close. I wrote something like, I truly wish I never was born or something. I don't know. And I so you know, this internet sometimes I'm very open. Like my mom always just said, Mike, you like an open book growing up right and so i did that and i meant it and it was bad and i didn't even realize i didn't even think that i don't know i just thought i felt like i was like writing down on a piece of paper with a pencil you know to be honest yeah yeah it was bad it was very 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 the worst i would never be like that again right? these people changed my life white twilly chris Raji, debbie scow Jordan Oaks, Paul Cobb. I just want to give them a shout out. Yeah, well, absolutely. My God, that you sounds. Oh, oh, David Lamb, Dave Lambert. It's it's kind of a list, but then you know, it's I mean, hopefully, I mean, it's always you know, things I'm a like nobody. this. Pardon? I mean, I'm a nobody, really. You know, so I mean, you know, I'm. I mean, who knows who I am? You know, I didn't expect that. That's all I'm saying. No, because it's from the hearts. It's just who I just didn't expect it. No, the words and oh, and what am I? I'm forgetting Steve Schiff, where he wrote. You know, yeah. you know, you, and we've been through hard times with this COVID, trying to navigate through that, and we've been so isolated, right? So yeah. that combined with that combined with realizing that. I signed my publishing over. Like those two things, going, I thought, like, why bother anymore? You know, it's like, I don't know. It's just just a bad day. Bad, 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 bad scariest day I ever had in my life. But it's yes. over. And I really did have an epiphany. And wow. you, how? Because I was not going to do interviews because of all this stuff, right? It's complicated, it's mm -hmm. emotional. But I'll tell you something, I had the best life 
in my life that I can imagine. Because I was a little kid with the dream. And what the heck are the odds coming from where I'm kind of wanting to Buffalo to be for that period of time, which was about a year, the biggest fan in LA. Who would, I never would have thought, I mean, that's pretty amazing. I don't know if you can see this picture. No, I can't. Show us this picture. Can you see this picture? No, just hold it up a bit higher. (laughs) Yes, the little kid at the piano. It's me. <laughs> oh my god, that's so cute! You need to hug. People. You need that to love. Be the cover of the album. <laughs> that's the. That is definitely the cover. Yes. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Sometimes and, I, and that they pulled that off from me too. I mean, it's amazing what some something we never think of could change your world, your life, your thoughts, the way your mind works. Yes, I know. Yeah. It's a different so one. Many but... people, yeah, I was going to say so sometimes. People, sometimes so you need... rock on suicide, like Prince and Michael Jackson, however, you know these amazing artists. Yeah, and I know the I know the pain. You know, I I've been there. It's very very much like working on a tightrope sometimes. Yes, and you I know? guess I guess hitting the bottom is um is at least one 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 part of that journey but then i think seeing that photograph of your child you know yourself as a baby and then also sort of appreciating all the things that you've done with all your you know music and archiving and if you can get a focus to sort of go forward and and a project it you know it could i think i think you know appreciating what you've done and not having the voice in that head in your head sort of always thinking what didn't happen and focusing on yeah, what you can right. control. If you can focus on what you can control rather than what you can't control, you can't control other people's right. emotions and actions. No, you can't go right. back and change the past, but you can take right. that moment to move forward for the future. And that that can be quite empowering when you sort of realize you. Yeah. And, and part of the epiphany I wrote, I said, time only moves forward and I'm going with it. Time it's doesn't true. move backward. It doesn't matter. You know, it's can't sit and ruminate about the past no. or the what ifs or what could have been. You can't. And, or let that pain from the past control your life now because that's all we got is now. And yeah, it's like, I just said, it's like time only moves forward. So I got to go with it because that's, that is the reality. And you can change the future. You can change now. I mean, yes. that's one thing we do, we do have control of. So I mean, so to, to, to when you wake up tomorrow, what you can yeah. do is 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 have three have three kind of things that you're grateful for, which could be just being able to stand up, being able to feel the the wind on your face or the light coming through the window, and just feel grateful for those three. You know, if you start the day like that, sometimes it can make yeah. you think, actually, I'm lucky because I can see. Some people can't even yeah. see, or I can feel, or I can hear. Some people can't do that, and sometimes. I sort of realize that those things can be quite powerful because you think I do take an awful lot for granted and start and, and then yeah. start con- focusing on the negative things. Whereas sometimes thinking, no, just be grateful for the very small things in life, like being able to right. walk or being able to see or being able to hear. And you think, yeah, my life is a bit of a miracle, but you can't change that publishing deal. You can't change what people did 40 years ago, but you right. can change somehow what you're going to focus on. And that can sometimes be a powerful thing. 
Right, because going through the past, you're going through a rabbit hole that you can't change. And you're just falling and falling and falling. And then you see all these, and you're, you know, when you're in that mode, you're just seeing all these regrets. And it's just a, just a continuous fall. It's a rabbit hole. And it does nothing productive about it. Yes. And you have no control. And that's what I've realized. That's the epiphany, a part of it's changed me so deeply. I'm so grateful for that change. So very grateful. Yeah. And also- I, I'm telling you, you really, just that little thing about the interview, well, I'm going to do this. And really, that really sparked me. I was someone cares to hear, hear me. <laughs> so thank you so much for that, Dave. Well, though, it's absolutely. You don't, you don't know. You know, I, I'm telling you. That thank you. I appreciate it. No, and I appreciate your sort of, you know, honesty as well and integrity and just being kind of open in this moment because, you know, that's all we've got. We're just two human beings on this weird planet. I know. I'm very comfortable talking to you and I just, it's just cathartic for me. And I think what I'd like to do is when I get my my music digital and so you can hear some of it, we could do another Yes. Connection where I could play some of the stuff for you. It's up to you if you want to. I would but, love to hear your music and I'd love to know uh, how you get on with your archiving because I'd love cool. archiving. It's a yeah. it's something that you know you should drop me a line every week to tell me what you've done archiving. And then oh, well, sort of, that was that's good. Because I just um, love to hear what people get up to and I love hearing right. you know people doing projects, however small or big, it's just like a positive it's that positive focus you know it's about you know it's not someone moaning or being negative it's like yep i've started working on this project and it's been right. good you know getting unstuck right you gotta and, move through it and i'm very much there um a couple of people have said they're interested in releasing it i want to look into and put out there like uh who i would like to met a met master them because that's all they need to be done Yes. So I mean, it's, I'm thinking maybe early next year, like hopefully I put them out. That's what I'm thinking, which is yes. great because I need to have something to look forward to. You know, you need that. You do need that. We all need right? that, don't we? And a good and a good cup of coffee and a cat or a dog. I mean, you, you have to have that. We have to have that. Look, Mike, I'm going to have to, um, I might have to make yeah. it. But look, thank you so much. Do keep in touch. And I've sent you the link to this while I put, um, I dropped a, a sort of message in your uh, page on Facebook okay. just to say what that book is, because it's a good book. It, it won yeah. lots of awards and stuff like that. So um, you'll like it. You'll like it. But I look, know, I will. And my, my best friend here since I was 16, I'm at a record store as a book reader fanatic. He reads every day. He's, he just wrote, you know, wants to read it too. Good. So that'd be great. Give yeah. give my love yeah. to your friend. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Dave so, Give yourself thank a hug. You. Ah, give you, you got look, it. Lots of love Dave. to both of you, okay? Take care. I'll keep you, I will I'll keep you posted, and I so much appreciate this um, chance and opportunity. Yes. Really. Look, thank you so much. Today. All the best, okay? All right. You have a good week. You too. Have a great weekend and uh, enjoy, enjoy the, and enjoy the life. Take care, matey. Bye-bye. Bye, my friend. Bye. There you go. I know I could have edited all that out, but it made me smile. And that's what's the only and most important thing in life. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Mike Gallo for giving me the time for that interview. 
And um, hopefully we'll be, you know, hearing more from him soon. Anyway, this has been The C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Keep it groovy. That's what we say here. And um, also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. True. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.